Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with critic Tony Macklin. Mr. Macklin is a former film and literature professor at the University of Dayton and the former editor of the magazine Film Heritage. His well-received book, Voices from the Set, The Film Heritage Interviews, includes his interviews with Hitchcock, Hawks, Scorsese, Altman, Peckinpah, John Wayne, and many more. Mr. Macklin corresponded with Mr. Kubrick on several occasions. Well, when you wrote to me about uh, doing The Shining, I opened up the vault on Kubrick, and I had forgotten how immense an effect he had had on me. I think that he may well be the top director for film criticism, for the, the, the learning how to watch films, because his films almost always are rejected and negated by critics on their initial reading, on their initial watching. They go to the film with their expectations, and when he doesn't meet their expectations, they say he's a failure. No, it's them who has failed because people don't like what they don't understand. And um, when you begin to start understanding, getting on Kubrick's wavelength, he he has so much audacity. He is so bright. Uh, everything has a meaning. And I, I, I think you have said that you have gotten a lot of different interpretations on his work, and I think that most of them would be valid because he told me or he wrote me, he said, uh, I don't offer interpretations of my own films. I let them stand on their own. And he, that's what he wanted to happen. So I, my, my sense is that when you go to Kubrick, it is such a challenge for a critic or a reviewer or any watcher of film and that if you can get on his wavelength it's a terrific experience it can be a terrific experience yeah we really are missing something without a new kubrick film i mean it's there's there, there's no one like him would you imagine that he's been gone dead for 12 years yeah I mean, <laughs> that, that was another shock when i realized that um I think writing about The Shining, writing about 2001, and writing about another director's uh, Chinatown um, were three experiences that really taught me what the art form of film can be. Mm -hmm. Well, and he he only made 13 feature films. It's Kubrick. Um, and yet there's so much there. And I find, just in the course of doing this series, that Rewatching some of these films, you know, a decade or more from the first time I saw them, uh, they have completely different meanings to me. I, f I feel them more deeply. I I'm more 
uh, it's more they're more accessible to me in some way. Well, that's what a work of art should do. I I remember every time I had to teach Citizen Kane, I'd say, oh, not again. And then that music would start, and it'd get me, and I'd be thinking about uh, characters' relationships or uh, some some kind of symbolism or some kind of theme that I hadn't quite explored before. And I think it's the same way with uh, Kubrick, that he leaves so many doors cracked open they aren't wide. You can't walk in them. You have to, you have to figure out how to how to open them. But they're there, and it leads you to to all kinds of uh, resonances. For instance, um, I think in The Shining, the the final picture uh, when it, we see Jack on in a picture on the wall uh, when when. Uh, it was the July 4th ball of 1921, and we see the Jack from 1921 in that picture. And most critics have just said, it, 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 it doesn't mean anything. But to me, the more I thought about it, the more I considered it and pondered it, it really is a statement about where this country has come. And once I got on that wavelength, the American dream has been corrupted, the American dream is made into cartoons, the American dream has been has been wasted. Uh, and then when I read Pauline Kael's review, um, she said when she reviewed The Shining, and she was one, she was a major critical voice, maybe the major critic in the 60s and 70s for the New York magazine. And she hated Kubrick films. Yes, generally. she didn't like that. <laughs> but I think it was because she went so often unable to understand him as he as he had to be understood. I read her review recently, and she uses the word seems. It seems to me she used that word nine different times, and she said that picture that I was just saying really was the key to me or the keystone or the thing that reverberated. She said, quote, the picture seems not to make any sense. It just seems like a dumb finish. Well, no, it's, <laughs> it, it seems like the critic doesn't get it. Or there, that Kale saw it and didn't understand it and therefore rejected it. And I think that's, that's the test of Kubrick, that we see so many reviewers on first review, on first looking at the film saying, it, 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 I don't like this. That's not what I thought it would be. It's it's self-indulgent. It goes somewhere unexpected. It's no good. No, it means that they failed as a reviewer. I mean, you can you can read it, you can see a film and validly criticize it, but when you say I don't understand it, it makes no sense. Your criticism probably is invalid. Well, you know, I you mentioned Pauline Kael, and I, I love. Pauline Kael, and I think she's the, one of the most vivid, entertaining, kind of acerbic writers of film, even if I don't agree with many of her opinions. But her, the most jaw-dropping line she dropped on a Kubrick movie was when she called 2001 uh, a terribly amateur movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, she was a smart writer, and I, I always read her, but I don't think she was a very good interpretive critic. I don't mm. think she could take the film apart I mean, a lot of people didn't like John Simon, but John Simon was a pretty good interpretive critic. 
Kaufman, uh, excuse me, Stanley Kaufman could do some work on that. I think she almost reviewed the audience rather than the film, or re reviewed in her mind what the film should be. And in The Shining, she didn't make it, but she certainly didn't see Cooper's version either. Right. Well, let's talk about, because you're absolutely right, that many of his films, most of his films probably were met with... Uh, without critical favor, and and critics like a lot of audiences, including myself, finally caught up with them. Um, well, what was your first reaction? What was your initial reaction to 2001? It was similar to my reaction on all of his films, uh, outside of Eyes Wide Shut. Strangely enough, it, they 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 did not move me emotionally. Um, and I found him, like many people find him, cold and a little too analytical. Um, so when I started doing the series, I was I gave myself a challenge to to think to myself, I'm going to finally try to get Kubrick, so and I'm going to do this series as a way to do that. And a few months into doing this, the interviews for this series, I I discovered it. <laughs> I mean, I, I I let his particular voice wash over me instead of. <clears throat> going to his movies and thinking to myself, this is not what I want from this movie. And The Shining is a prime example of that, because like many people, I I admired the the story of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it wasn't the book. It wasn't Stephen King, and it wasn't a horror film. It was a Kubrick not. film. Right. And when I finally accepted that, and I was able to appreciate his unique voice, uh, it has now become my favorite Kubrick film. <laughs> you were well. You were talking about the cold surface, but there. It may be surprising that there is a real humanity mm -hmm. to Kubrick behind the cold surface. Most viewers don't get to it. Now you had to have gotten to it if you liked if, um, Eyes uh, Wide Wide Shut, because the humanity is not on any of the surface, but it certainly is behind uh, what is happening. I think there is a compassion that a lot of people miss in his films because we're so accustomed to sentimentality in movies, and we confuse the two a lot. Uh, but I, I definitely see compassion. I see a lot of compassion in Barry Lyndon. I think Barry Lyndon is one of his most compassionate movies for me. Oh, uh, so do I. I think there's a huge difference between sentiment and sentimentality. Right. Now, he did come close to sentimentality, and that's why the ending worked best with the ending of his bride-to-be, Christiane, uh, singing the Germans, singing the song in Passive Glory to the French soldiers. I mean, that was a moment of, of, of true emotion that his film end, ended with. And usually he doesn't, he doesn't do that. I mean... I, I, I agree, and absolutely another point of his, of his work that I'm hooked on, uh, and it's probably the thing I enjoy most about Kubrick, is he wasn't afraid to be ambiguous. I, he, he explored the duality of man. Uh, and ambivalent, ambivalent, yeah, too. Yes, There's an ambivalence yes. in his film, films. Absolutely. So tell me about The, the Shining. Uh, it was a track that you were following a little bit there about people's expectations and, and and what they missed in The Shining because they were too focused on what they wanted it to be instead of what it was. 
Well, I don't want to exactly repeat myself, but it seems like it's a it's a it's a statement about the American dream. One of the things that people that hardly anybody is able to go to is go to a film or a movie, especially by an artist like Kubrick, and understand that the characters are banal and vapid and super uh, supercilious and superficial and shallow. Because that was the way he saw human nature. In a sense, like Jonathan Swift, he would like a few individuals, but mankind, he 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 thought was was a horror. Uh, he he said one time. Here's another note I have in the in the new in the, in the New York Times where where Kubrick talked about his his sense of man isn't a noble savage. He's an ignoble savage. He is irrational, brutal, weak silly, unable to be objective about anything where his own interests are involved. That's his statement about man. Well, the audience goes <laughs> and they say, whoa, I can't relate to that. <laughs> I, uh, but, 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 but once, you, once you understand the hollowness, all of his characters are hollow, but as you suggest, Barry, Win Barry uh, Lyndon has a humanity or there is a, there's a, a a fallibility, a vulnerability to him that uh, is not going to attract audiences immediately. You have to find it and and, and feel it yeah. as well. So, so my my sense is that I, I remember Kale reviewing two thousand and one, Kaufman reviewing two thousand and one, and they said the man can't write dialogue. No, no, people don't speak well. People are inarticulate. People don't say what they mean. I turn on the television. I'm a, I'm a sports fan. Now, I would say I'm a huge fan, but I'm, I'm a slender fellow, so I'm not a huge fan. Uh, I am a, a, an authentic fan. And every other play is called unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I just saw it. It's believable. And if, if Cooper were making a film today... I don't know how he could how he could make the human race any more banal than we have become. I, I saw yeah. a couple of weeks ago uh, on TV the, the TV ratings. The top twenty were there wasn't a drama. They were all would be talent shows and, and reality shows. And so I guess if Kubrick were, were coming back today, he'd make uh, the talent show at the Overlook, or mm. something like that. So, <laughs> uh, but but we we want heroes. That's why everybody who does something, everybody who serves, for instance, is called a hero because that's what we need. That's what we want. Kubrick said no. Kubrick said no. We are really, really fallible human beings. Yes. And you know, I think his in a Clockwork Orange, uh, more than the than the sex and the violence, I think what upset people was the lack of judgment about that character. The, yes, Kubrick didn't impose his moral judgment on that character. And I don't think he wanted the audience to too. He would let them, but I don't think that he was. I guess he's a moralist in terms of our behavior. And in terms of our society and our culture, but I, I, I think in, in Clockwork Orange, 
if you go in being judgmental, you're you're going to miss you're going to miss Kubrick. Mm-hmm. You're just going to see about- Alex, and you're not going to like Alex, and or you're going to be shocked by Alex. Um, yeah. Tell me your take on. Um, I, th- I think another thing that's off-putting to some people about Kubrick is that naturalism is not necessarily his goal. Uh, and especially as an American audience, I mean, we're, we 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 kind of demand that of our performances a lot of times in our films. Well, that's not exactly true, because the help is the number one film this week, <laughs> and <laughs> that's not exactly naturalistic. The Blind Side was a, a, an Oscar winner. And that's not naturalistic. So I, I, I would say to you that actually the audience doesn't want naturalism at all. They what what they think is naturalism. They think that that, that the this this confection reality uh, is the real world, and of course there's no real world. But it, it's not the actual world at all. It's it's movies making them feel good. What Kubricks do is they don't make us feel good, but they make us think good. They make us think well. And that's our humanity. Our humanity is our minds. It's our hearts, too. But they ha- there has to be a balance in them. And if we go there just, and most of the audience go with just not forget the head, forget the heart, it's just their butts that they go to the mm-hmm. film with. Uh, sit, uh, seats in the uh, butts in the seat, and so the 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 naturalism that seems to me is not what the audience wants at all. I don't think they can handle it. Yeah, but you feel that Kubrick delivered that more than most directors. Well, I I I don't think he was concerned with naturalism because I don't think there's much truth in naturalism. Mm-hmm. If, if if you can say. This is the real, authentic world, but it's a world without meaning. Then the naturalism is, is kind of an end in itself. I mean, I like it. I, I think it's important, and I think there are scenes certainly in uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket and uh, Paths of Glory that have an, a naturalistic quality. Yeah. But I, I think, I think. The artifice is more real than naturalism in the hands. Let me go to literature for a minute. Um, A sociological study about an adolescent done by an expert in adolescence. Compare that to Jerome David Salinger's treatment of uh, Holden Caulfield and Ketrin Rye. One is actual, and the other is artistic and human and real. Yeah. Well, and I think when Nicholson was interviewed about The Shining uh, around the time of the production, he spoke about this uh, concerning Kubrick, and he said Kubrick isn't concerned with what's real or natural. He's concerned with what's interesting. Um, And what interests me about Kubrick is he seemed consumed with with ideas and choosing a certain property to kind of funnel his own personal obsessions through. Sure. 
I'm, I'm curious. I, well, the other thing is, is Nicholson's performance is really underrated because he's an actor playing a character who's playing another character. And so there's a kind of, um, but you have to see the artistry in his playing this uh, ordinary man, every man, but also the the failed artist. That 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 there's there's a, a a depth, a dimension. I guess is a better word. A dimension to Jack Nicholson's performance. It's not. He's not the Joker. He's not the Joker in Batman. He is a, a, an actor, really testing his ability to go beyond what we think he is. So, so do you think that, um, I mean, what, you say that he's an actor playing a character playing a character. Right. In a sense, he is to me. I think Jack Nicholson is a misunderstood actor. Uh, I loved his performance in The Passenger. I loved his perform- yeah. performance low-key. I loved his performance low-key in The King of Marmon Gardens. Probably mm-hmm. nobody knows that. Nobody's seen Bob Rafelson's film. They they think of, of him as um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Batman. That's that's Jack Nicholson. King but of Marvin Gardens was really against type. I mean, that was they. He and Bruce Dern essentially switched. Roles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. But, but Nicholson is interesting because you uh, because he's giving this very large Kabuki type performance, and that was just one of the aspects of the movie that was misunderstood. Um, what do you think are some of the others of, that were misunderstood of The Shining? Well, the the basic one is is Kubrick's vision. That's the ultimate basic one. That the American dream is now the American emptiness. It's there. The dream is now. Jack was a party goer. He was alive. He was the figure of vitality in 1921, and now. He's a failed artist who can only write all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And of course, our divine Pauline made, made used that line to make to talk about to, to refer to the film. But he he is a man that is in is in competition with his son who has the shining. Jack Nichols, Jack Torrance doesn't have it, and there's a when he goes into the hedge, into his own mind, into his own madness, into his own surrender, it's very interesting that the boy, that Danny, retraces his steps. He doesn't go into the maze. He comes out of it, and he he retains his humanity. So if if you watch the red, white, and blue, the colors that Kubrick uses in that film, they're used over and over and over again. American flag. There are Americans on the flag on the wall. There's an American flag on the table. Uh, Denny is wearing a, an Apollo shirt. There's a whole structure, but but it's also become the Roadrunner and uh, Wiley Coyote. And in a sense, I think maybe uh, Danny's the Roadrunner, and Wiley Coyote is uh, Jack Torrance. Is, huh. is the Jack Nicholson character? So it seems it seems to me that, that in that film, 
probably more than any, Kubrick says the American dream is dead. Um, it doesn't have its spirituality any longer. I mean, he should be around today, right? Uh, yeah. It doesn't have its spirituality anymore. Everybody has their own opinion and only their own opinion. There's very little understanding. There's very little communication. Um, and and the uh, the uh, Halloran is slain. Of course, he's he helped save he helped save Danny. And so there's that there's that hope, I guess, in the, in that the sun will somehow, with his gift of shining, somehow prevail. Although in the world of Kubrick, it's, it's more you endure than in, than you prevail. Yeah, yeah. I think the hope, if there is hope to be found in the movie, it, it is in what you just said, how he gets out of the maze retracing his father's footsteps. Uh, maybe he breaks that that cycle. Uh, and when, when I think about The Shining, I think about it really being the ultimate horror movie because there's, there's so much in the movie that speaks to the horrors of the world. Uh, there's abuse. Uh, there's a, a definite streak of racism in the film. Right. Uh, it's almost like going on your track about the American dream. It's almost how that dream has been perverted and corrupted. Uh, a lot of the themes that he's exploring in the movie, I find. Oh, I think I, I think his hope for America is is is, is gone. Yeah. It, 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 it is. It's a horror. It's the horror of banality. It's the horror of the ordinary. We have seen the ordinary. Now it's almost like if you're an educated person, you are in some somehow you are relegated to beneath the human race. That if you read one book, you are better than if you read hundreds in today's world. I think I think Kubrick's uh, vision uh, has has certainly not uh, been been countered in the last ten years. Yeah. What do you think? Hey, I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Uh, uh, depression. Now we still have vodka. <laughs> no, believe me, we've we've discussed at length his kind of view on humanity and, and where we're going in these films. So and it's pretty dim. So so I'm I, I'm definitely open to that uh, conversation. But uh, one thing one thing I I also like I, I like his perfectionism because I am a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. I hear on the radio, for instance. And nobody would understand, hardly anybody will understand why this would make me want to change my insurance policy because it's State Farm. And their commercial is Falcon. This guy's walking with a Falcon. And then I hear people introducing the movies, the Maltese Falcon. It's not Falcon. Falcon was a car. Falcon's a football team. It is Falcon. Falcon is the bird. It's the Maltese Falcon. Please, please. <laughs> and then, then there was another commercial. No, I'm off on commercial. There was another commercial that uh, had a CEO coming forward with this this really uh, enlightened look, and he said, "I looked up the word unlimited in the dictionary." Well. Whoopee! That's great. You looked up the word <laughs> "unlimited." 
<laughs> so I'm right. See, I'm I'm with Kubrick. I I I think I understand him because I can be gregarious and I can like individuals, but boy, yeah. the, the masses scared the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I understand. <clears throat> I I wanted to ask you about the uh, the other actors in the film. I think that. Shelley Duvall just gives a breathtaking raw performance in this movie. Um, what, what does the movie have to say about marriage when you compare it to something like Eyes Wide Shut? Wow. <laughs> um, I think in The Shining, the marriage is over. In Eyes Wide Shut, we're not sure what will happen. It's probably over. They're going home to have sex. They're leaving a toy store. They're still together, but of course we knew that we know and we knew that Cruz and Kidman were on the proverbial down elevator, and uh, uh, we're going to to eventually break up. I, uh, I, my, my, my sense would be that the marriage is dead in one film and it's dying in the other film. Yeah. Jeez, I, 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 I need a drink after this call. I, 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 no. I thought we'd talk about you know the operas, and then I, then you got me into you got me into Kubrick's soul. Well, and, yeah, this will be the most depressing show of the series. <laughs> well, that, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. I I told you I got several letters from from Stanley. I, I and wanted to ask all, you about that. Yeah, they were all extremely generous. I mean, I I think because at least a little bit I understood some of his films, and I wrote an article in 2001 that he really liked because they had criticized the that Kubrick couldn't write dialogue. I mean, he would never say this. I I said it. Well, and as I said before, it's the characters who can't speak dialogue, and, true, and Kubrick is not writing bad dialogue. He's writing the, the bad dialogue that people speak. He can't write good dialogue because their dialogue is, is, is so insipid. But uh, the first time he, he wrote back to me was when I, I, I had fun with uh, Dr. Strangelove. I call it a sex allegory. And that's when he wrote me that uh, he, he he wouldn't offer his opinion. He let the film stand for itself. And uh, he said, I would not think of quarreling with your interpretation. <laughs> interpretation is interesting because I think that's what separates a critic from a non-critic. You interpret what's going on. Nor offering yeah. any other, as I have found it always the best policy to allow the film to speak for itself, which makes makes perfect sense and and then uh he after i think uh, after 2001 he, he he wrote me a nice note and after uh barry linden uh he wrote me uh, again and uh i wasn't corresponding Dar diane Dot johnson who did the uh the uh film script of the shining sent it to him and she told me that he really he really liked it um, I don't want to. Yeah, can wow. I say my site is TonyMacklin.net? Uh, uh, no, absolutely. We're, and people can that. Yeah. people can see it on on that. Absolutely. Um, and then 
in two of the letters, and as I told you, what 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 was the matter with me? I must have been young and callow, because in one he said, "When you're in London, come visit me." Mm-hmm. And another time he he said, "I'm in New York, where we can have a drink together." And I was in Ohio, but today, as I said to you, I hop on a plane. I <laughs> I wow. I don't know. I, I I don't know, but uh, you know what? It, it's amazing that he. I mean, he did take the time to write you, and he was in communication with. You know, people say that he was so confined and solitary, but he was communicating with the world every day. I mean, the, yeah. nothing passed him. And I I think a lot of it is Frederick Rayfield's book about yeah. eyes wide shut, where it looked like a hatchet job on on Kubrick. Mm-hmm. And this idea that because his films are cold, he is cold. I don't think anybody, maybe an ironist could, but I don't think any absolutely cold, non-feeling person could have made the ending to Pass of Glory, that, that, that wonderful yeah. scene with his wife-to-be. Now, you might say, now, wait a minute, you said he's satiric. Maybe he's satirizing you getting emotionally involved. That's possible. But I go more with uh, that's a little insight into, especially since he married her. That, uh, yes. that, that, that that's a little insight into something personal. Absolutely. And that's the problem. Think... I. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, no. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Uh, when people, another th- uh, criticism thrown at him. You said that you love the fact that he's a perfectionist. He's very yes. meticulous. Yes. Some people say that his meticulous nature his 70 takes it, it kind of would suck the life out of the material and it was he was so consumed with the details that he failed to see the uh, the forest through the trees or i can i can see it both ways i can see both arguments i know in the paths of glory the 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 duck eating scene one of the actors who was in that before the three soldiers were executed before the soldiers were executed they shot it 69 times that's a lot of duck in 69 times <laughs> and i guess uh, manju had uh, done take after take after take after take after take after take and he said i'm going to lunch and stanley said no we're going to shoot one more and manju supposedly cursed him and cursed him and cursed him and called him everything out and after what manju uh uh ran out of epithets, he said, uh, Kubrick said, we'll shoot it again. And Manjo complied <laughs> docilely. So, <laughs> I think also, he's, he's being a perfectionist, he's saying, maybe there'll be an accident, maybe something will yeah. happen. I don't think it's, dr- I don't think it's, it's without, it's just mechanical. I don't think that at all. I think he's looking for the perfect shot. Well, probably not going to get it, but he's going to get damn close to it by his repetition. Now that does become a, a an obsession, or certainly a, a commitment that goes beyond the bounds. Mm-hmm. But you'd ask a good actor, and he would say, I would guess he would say, uh, shooting too many takes is much better than shooting not enough. Um, Absolutely. That, and, and, uh, go ahead. 
and you know, I've uh, in the, with the actors I've been speaking to for the series. <clears throat> excuse me. They they all say that there was a method to this madness that you you got to an emotional place where you weren't thinking, you were behaving, and that's when, as you say, the, the happy accidents occurred. I think that's uh, perfect. That's, I mean, I think that's right on the target. That that he wears them down and finds a humanity, and it may not be what the actor wants to see on screen. It may be I'm tired, I'm disgusted, I'm I'm not showing my my pretty face any longer. I'm pissed off, and that may be exactly what he wants. So he has a, he and he has a range of decisions to make. Um, and I think that's most most obvious in Shelley Duvall's performance. Uh, uh, that kind of ragged run down, just complete and utter desperation. Uh, she gives a great performance. I've got a, oh. I've got a really, really, really embarrassing and. Uh, Macklin, you were you were you were a jackass. I was down with <laughs> Altman when he made Three Women, mm. and I had an interview with him, and it went really well, and I I got fairly friendly with him. And and I mean, I was just worn out, and I wouldn't do this today. I mean, I hope I wouldn't do this today. So when I sat down with uh, with uh, uh, Duval, Duval, um, I said, "Ask yourself a question and answer it." And that may be the worst <laughs> opening line. <laughs> I mean, I had just left it on the on the on the. In the in the swimming pool and on the floor with uh, wow with Bob and uh, so <laughs> that's great that's a great interview tactic I think I might try that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say neither of us really wanted to continue. Now when when Shirley McLean when I got covered with coffee I think that was an accident. I don't think she meant to <laughs> spill her coffee in my lap. You know you mentioned Altman though and and it. And I'm crazy about Altman as well, but he was also a guy, and people view he and Kubrick as very different creatures, and obviously they do have distinct differences. But he was also a guy that liked to be surprised. He liked the actors to surprise him. I mean, he had a different method at getting to that than Kubrick did. I, I think the, both of them were very satiric, and mm -hmm. they liked to see what I referred to before as happy accidents that things would happen in a performance that they might fall back on something personal that you wouldn't get otherwise. And I, I think there's quite a bit in common with Altman and uh, Kubrick in, the, in their sense, their exploration of humanity. Um, mm. And their sense, I guess, really, of absurdity. That you see films like like uh, um, uh, Good, Long Goodbye, that's a wonderful film, but it's steeped in absurdity, and you can see his view of America and Kubrick's view of America. There's a different tone, but there may be a similar sense of observation. Observation. You know what, though, and with with the long goodbye and the shining uh 
they're similar in that people saw the long goodbye and they said that's not the Philip Marlowe movie I want. Exactly. They, yeah. Yeah. They both had audacity. They both they 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 are two of the most audacious filmmakers in the history of American art mm-hmm. in American films. Also, look at the ending of 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 uh, um oh the, the one about uh country music. Nashville. Nashville. Um the ending of that certainly is devastating. Mm-hmm. America, the political system, we have each other to cling to, but the society has fallen. And so there's a there's a sense about America, and I get I guess from most people who are social critics, um, like Kubrick and Altman and myself, uh, on a <laughs> back in the caboose. Um, there's a there's a, a, a sense of what our society is about and what human nature is about, and we they 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 perceive things that are we think singular, but they really aren't. They they really have a, a, a really have a, a resonance and a a, a broad meaning, broad spectrum right. of the mean part of the tapestry. Universality, too. yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. <clears throat> um, and that that's a great word, universality, because Kubrick will never, will never, his vision is about ver- universality, but he can never appeal to mm-hmm. uni- the universal, because the universal doesn't want to hear what he has to say. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. that reminds me of a story though that. Uh, you know, we talked about Kubrick having the world at his fingertips and on the phone at all times and communicating with people. And uh, I, I heard that he had called Robert Altman after seeing McCabe, and he was curious about how he achieved a particular shot. And McCabe is just the most gorgeous film Wonderful. I've ever seen. Oh, um, but uh, I heard a funny the story. The Hungarian filmmaker was it Vilmos Zygmunt? Vilmos Zygmunt. We yes. had him on the yes. show. He's oh. oh, oh. I I was in his house, and here's another personal revealing moment. God, did he have a beautiful blonde daughter? Uh, <laughs> he had the canoe. He had the canoe from Deliverance out in his backyard. So, wow! But he was wow. he he was he was a wonderful uh, cinematographer. Oh, absolutely. But uh, anyway, it, you, you, you're he, talking about the call, Kubrick. Uh, called Gordon Willis. This is a funny story I heard. And he would do this sort of thing. And it was something like 3 o'clock in the morning for Gordon Willis. <laughs> he's, being, he's being woken up by this phone call from Kubrick. And uh, he says, do you have any idea what time it is here, Stanley? And he said, okay, let me get my glasses on and go downstairs so I, can, I don't wake up my wife. And he walks downstairs and he says, what do you want? And Stanley says, remember that shot in The Godfather when he wanted to, he wanted to ask how he accomplished a shot? I mean, it's delicious. Hey, that's commitment. That's commitment. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> as long as he's not calling you drunk and, and uh, I want to talk about that, Sean. But I think he's probably uh, wants, wants information, wants education from him. He's a, he was a sponge. He was endlessly intuitive, Kubrick was. Absolutely. Right. Right. Uh, well, they both were. Altman and, and Kubrick both were very, very intuitive. 
Mm-hmm. They, they, that was one of their strengths. Do, do we have anyone, American filmmakers, that are on par with that voice that they both possess? Oh, now you're going to make me sound old, aren't right. you? You had to go well, and I'm, do it. I'm in the same boat. I, I feel the same way. Um, so. I, I, I liked Midnight in Paris, but that's certainly not by a young man. Mm-hmm. Woody Allen is still around. Uh, but that's the you know 70s, so we can't we can't include him. I like Tom McCarthy. I wish he'd make more films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Win Win, I think, is a is a very fine film. Have you seen of Gods and Men? Uh, is the uh, French film? Men, no, of Gods and Men. I, I recommend that highly to you. Uh, but that's a foreign film. Um, I, I have great hopes. I'll tell you, I, I do have great hopes for it might it could be his time to make his master work, uh, David Fincher with uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, which mm-hmm. is coming out this Christmas. And mm-hmm. talk about a filmmaker who on the you see the surface and what is, uh-huh, this is kind of this is not. Not really entertaining. Have have you seen the one uh, I always call it the Scorpio, but that's uh, Zodiac. Zodiac, thank you. That Zodiac. I mean, the way he uses color, the way he uses rain, the way he he is. I think I think Fincher has a chance to be. I mean, I I, I didn't get much out of. Uh, Button yourself or whatever the whatever the deal was. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Button, yeah. Yeah, um, but uh, Zodiac, I think, is is the kind of film that these two filmmakers, especially Kubrick, made that uh, keeps keeps li- and, and keeps living and perhaps growing as time goes by. So I I would say, Dave, my my money, if I had to bet on somebody, would be David Fincher. Yeah. This may this may be the, the, the to tell you how what a paucity I have. My film of the year last year was the Swedish version of Girl of the Girl of the uh, Dragon Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So mm-hmm. this I can bookend it with uh, Fincher's. I really have great hopes for it. I, li- I like too. Daniel Craig a lot, and uh, the girl who played I mean, Pace was was wonderful. I can't imagine. I always forget whether it's Rooney Mara or Mara Rooney. I know that she was named after two owners <laughs> in the NFL, the one in Washington and the one in, in uh, New York. But whoever whoever plays Lisbeth. Uh, Big shoes to fill. Yeah, but I think, she might, I think she's probably good because um, Fincher can get good performances out of, out of almost everyone. Yeah. So, so my get my 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 money's Fisher. You know what? And and it's it's funny that you say that because uh, when people there was an article last year I happened upon I don't remember where but it talked about who's the, who's our next Kubrick, which is kind of a ludicrous question to begin with because there was only one Kubrick. What was wrong with the Kubrick that we had? But uh, but uh, they came up with Fincher and Nolan. See, I think Nolan's not. No, no. I I think Nolan's a lot of show. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't have 
the insight or the vision. I mean, it's, it's not. I'm just saying he's not at the level of for me. He's not at the yeah. level of a Fincher or a uh, of certainly a Kubrick. I um, I wouldn't I wouldn't think so. I, he, he's going to be more popular, perhaps, than either of them. Uh, yeah, but that isn't necessarily. Uh, so so what do you think? What do you think that is that Fincher has that Kubrick had? Is it kind of the the marriage? The perfect marriage of the kind of the visual style and the thematic. It might thread. it might be it might have something to do with that they're both Jewish, uh, and were brought up um, respecting um, movies and and then I don't want to say being estranged because that's too strong. Um, being uh, having an artistic, but knowing that they had to be also businessmen in a in an industry that really was controlled by business, they were both able to survive with their excuse me visions intact uh, because they're fighters. I think yeah. Fincher, uh, Fincher, unfortunately, relented on the ending of, of Seven, which broke my heart. The ending of Seven was supposed to end with Brad Pitt opening the box and, and screaming, giving this this yowl like Jack does at the end of The Shining. But they had they had Morgan Freeman with his mellifluous voice read a passage from Hemingway that's hopeful, and they said at, if this is screening and if they're equal, if the two versions are equal, we'll go with yours, David. And of course they were equal, and of course they didn't go with his. Mm-hmm. So I think and he, it feels ter- terribly tacked on and kind of. Oh, it is tacked on. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just the other thing is too bleak. I mean, uh, the audience isn't going to give this rating, uh, this film, a good rating because they feel like they, what a downer this is. So right. they tack on that that the, the Hemingway would have hated it too. He would have said, "No, you can't do that." Yeah. But, uh, so I, th- I think they both have a, uh, they both have experience, personal and business experience. They both have a, um, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. Uh, sense that gets worn away from most directors, um, and I think Fincher still has his, if not intact, it's got to be some somewhere with tenant. But I have a sense that his vision is his truth, and he is going to be true to it, as as Kubrick was. So maybe he has to move to England. Who knows? But, but uh, Kubrick had, uh, I mean, the sweetest deal ever for, for a filmmaker. Well, I, you don't mean with Spartacus, do you? No, 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 no. I mean, post-2001. Post but, uh, I mean, when he got together with Warner Brothers, they really nurtured uh, his needs, uh, and, and like no other director. Well, and to tell you a story about Warner Brothers, um, I had a friend at, uh, oh, what's the company that, that did Million Dollar Baby? Warner Brothers said they wouldn't make it. They thought they told Clint. <laughs> Can you imagine them telling Clint? No, it's not. <laughs> it's, not it's not box office. And so, uh, Lakeshore. So he got Lake. He got backing from Lakeshore. Well, of course, at that point, Warner Brothers said, "Uh oh, 
better tag along. So now it's Lakeshore and Warner Brothers. But but Clint almost wasn't able to make a million dollar baby, which won the Oscars the best film of the year. Yeah. Because the the studio didn't see the commercial possibilities in it. Isn't so that that's always he, a factor. Pardon he, me? And he, he he built his career and he built a, a lot of Warner Brothers throughout his career <laughs> with those films. So they still doubt him, you know. Yes. Well, I was uh, talking about Hemingway. I I was I had a, a, a fellow I went to grade school with named Lawrence Stevens. He was in the office when one of the publishers turned down a book by Hemingway. <laughs> so I I mean I guess. Wow. You and I are just <laughs> trying to get published and. Uh, Hemingway and Clint are getting rejected. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a world is this? Uh, so I wanted to ask you quickly about the, uh, uh, another Kubrick film. He sure. returned, I, I mean, in a way, he worked in many different genres. His films are quite different on the surface, but uh, as a whole, I mean, he's exploring a lot of the same themes and issues. Uh, but he returned to the war film several times. What do you think made his uh, portrayal of war unique? Well, I was afraid you were going to ask that because I, I think there's a cruelty in Full Metal Jacket. That I mean, I, I respect the man. I respect the film. I wish it didn't end with that Mickey Mouse Club thing, uh, a theme that the soldiers mm -hmm. are singing as they march off because that seems to me really coy. But I, I, I withdraw my, my sense of that. I think there's a there's a a real part of Kubrick who understand it, who understood how violent man's possibilities were, and talk about ambivalence. Mm -hmm. I think there's an ambivalence between peace and war, and he knows that he recognizes the, the character wears a peace at the same time a, a peace. Uh, um, 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 emblem at the same time that he's killing. Uh, I think that kind of thing brought man to his, or brings man to perhaps what Kubrick thought was a primal um, nature. And I think the war, since he, there's violence in his films. His, his, he's not anti-violence. And I think that since America has been so um, uh, I was going to say masochistic, but that's not the word I mean. I'm masochistic. <laughs> uh, they've been so worn, to, uh, 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 wed to war that to, talk, to, to make films about America is to study war, is to study American behavior in war. But yeah. uh, the last one has just—it's just cruel. Um, the ambivalence—I can see a little bit of ambivalence, but it, it's—I um, don't usually get depressed by Kubrick's films, but maybe I should go back and, and see that again. What's your sense of it? That's an odd one, and it's the one I return to the least. Um, yeah. Strangely enough, but and, and the, the big criticism that's that's thrown at the film a lot is the fact that it and this was surely by design. I mean, nothing happens by accident at a Kubrick film, but um, it, the, the two distinct halves of the film and many well, people wanted, thought, that was very yeah. very important to him to, to 
to shake the audience's sense of story. I mean, the, the, that he wanted, I think he wanted the audience fractured. He wanted them to to be unsettled mm-hmm. and to to not have the expectations that were possible to to say whoa, whoa whoa what what happened what's going on here so it, it seems to me like that that was one of the really key elements of 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 the film yeah it is a jarring the two cuts that i think of the most in kubrick's work uh works is obviously the 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 bone <clears throat> cutting to the satellite flying through space kind of mm-hmm. in 2001 skipping over millions of years of evolution but right. also the the cut in full metal jacket where that transition takes place from the suicide murder suicide cutting to Vietnam and Nancy Sinatra on the soundtrack <laughs> you know it's jarring yeah again it's it's satiric again yeah. it's, there's the, the 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 one of the ways to show satire is to show abrupt and as you say shocking change that mm-hmm. he, our, our senses our expectations our preconceptions are shaken they're they're disrupted and so i think it's him one of the ways that he is able to say or to try to say audience i'm not going to give you what you expect yeah so so here it is do you find Eyes Wide Shut a, a fitting book into his career? I, when you gave me the the, the idea of, do, of talking to you about The Shining, I uh, thought a lot about Eyes Wide Shut as well. Um, it's not a picture I have written about, and when I write, I, I have more of a sense. But it, it's. Uh, I do think, because it it has sex as experience and sex as commitment, Mm -hmm. and and the the difference between the two, and it also has what I've said about the America and social communication and Christmas and toys and rituals and. They are are put into a, a society that is uh, that that shakes them up. I I want to I I've read a little bit about it. How personal it was in terms of you're talking about all the takes. Well, I think you would have to have uh, T. S. Eliot's uh, dictionary to understand all the illusions and some of the, a lot of them personal illusions that are in that film and so i'm at the point of respect growing into appreciation but i haven't i haven't reached the i haven't reached it yet i haven't reached yeah. the culmination yet and, and i think I, I, I think yeah, but to answer yes yes and I, I, because it's an important film, and it's a film that, by its very nature, has to be understood better with time. Has to mm-hmm. more people going to it, more critics going to it, and and comparing it, and, and thinking 
getting away from the immediacy and all the publicity and all of the negative reviews and all of the lack of understanding and all of the insults and realize that it's very much a part of his limited group of films. And and I think uh, it's a it's it's a film he can be proud of as his last film. Mm-hmm. I think he and I think he was, if if I if the reports of it are true, um, that he was very satisfied with it. And he was married three times, and you know, I guess this last marriage lasted fifty forty two years. It worked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in forty two years, I suppose you'd learn something about married sex. Absolutely, and he was he was uh, wanting to do that project for quite some time, and he always kind of put yeah. it on the back burner. So it was always burning in his brain, and uh, maybe he felt at that stage of his life and his marriage, I think I know how to do this now. Well, here's another thing uh, that Tom Cruise, I think, is another underrated actor. People mm-hmm. view him as one-dimensional, and I don't think he is at all. And I think it was happy casting when, uh, oh, who was originally supposed to do it? Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee was cast opposite, well, she, opposite she was, some... Harvey Keitel was cast in it as... Harvey Keitel, thank you. Thank yeah, you very yeah. much. It was Cartel. But by doing Cruz and Kidman, they make them into wasps. And have you heard that... that Bill Harford, which was which is the character's name, do you know where that supposedly came from? I heard this. I can't remember it. Tell Harrison me. Ford, Harford, yeah. Harrison Ford, the all-American, the uh-huh. waspish all-American that has that is affluent, but is now on an odyssey after the meaning or lack of meaning of of sex and, and relationships. So I think it, it's it's a it's a it's a worthy uh, finale. You know what's interesting about Cruise in that movie too, because this is something that I've thought a lot about. Why why Cruise? Um, and there's something about Tom Cruise that in every movie he play, he, he was in prior to that he was always active. You know the go getter guy, the mm-hmm. one the, the all American that could accomplish anything. Even in a movie like Born in the Fourth, I mean he he be, he becomes an activist. <laughs> uh but there's something passive and voyeuristic. Uh he's a voyeur. Oh very much nice so. one shot. It's a different kind of mode that Kubrick puts him in in that film. And Kubrick must have uh, I mean he must have chuckled when he thought I'm gonna give them a Tom Cruise that they're not gonna know what to do with. Mm-hmm. The audience, mm-hmm. uh, and I think by the, by that very nature, as, well as we've talked all, all so far, it's doing the unexpected, and people people rush to judgment. Oh, it's unexpected, therefore it's superficial. No, no, right. no. 